Well, in 1997, the notorious B.I.G., come on somebody, posthumously released the hit song, Mo Money, Mo Problems. Look at your neighbor and say, Mo Money, Mo Problems. Mo money, mo problems. And in it, the chorus, it says, it's like the, the, the more money that we come across, the more problems that we see. So essentially, the more money that we get, the more money that we attain, it seems like it doesn't simplify our life, but actually it just complicates it and makes it a little bit more difficult, right? And this actually turned out to be the case um, for Biggie Smalls, as well as rival rapper Tupac Shakur, as they were both assassinated in a feud that revolved around financial gain, getting, right, mo money. So I also came across the story of a couple in New England, excuse me, in England, who never argued, ever, all right? They reportedly, they never argued they had a great marriage. They win the lottery, right? Come on, that's our dream, right? To win the lottery. They never argued. And so what they did was they bought a new Porsche, to drive around, they went and they bought a mansion to live in, and then they took trips to Dubai. Right? They're living a dream, right? Within five years, they were divorced over financial instability and rumors of infidelity. I came across the story of a Pennsylvania man named William Post, who won $16.2 million in 1988. $16.2 million. Within one year, he was $1 million in debt. His ex-girlfriend sued him for a third of his winnings, and she won. And his own brother tried to have him assassinated so that he could inherit some of the winnings. Look at your neighbor and say, mo money, mo problems. (laughs) In an interview with the Washington Post, he said this, I wish it never happened. It was a total nightmare. I was much happier when I was broke. He died in 2006 living on food stamps and welfare. One winner of the lottery said in an interview, it drains the life from you. It, it puts a terrible strain on your marriage. It was the cruelest torture imaginable. Mo money, mo problems. Or I, I began to think as I was preparing for this message, is it money that's the problem? Or does money just reveal what's really inside of you, Right? Is money evil or does just money reveal the evil that exists in all of us? Well, this is the warning of James. James offers us some encouragement to his poor brothers and sisters in Christ in the passage we're going to look at today. But he also issues a very sharp, very pointed warning to the rich. So we're in week three of our sermon series going through the letter of James. And the author calls himself James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So traditionally and historically, this book has been attributed to James, the half-brother of Jesus. And he writes to Jewish Christians who are experiencing mass persecution. He's writing to new converts to Christianity as well as people claiming to be Christians who are in the church, right, and and claim to follow Jesus. And they're experiencing mass persecution and so they have been dispersed outside of Israel. And this is actually really a letter of encouragement. It's very challenging, but it's a letter of encouragement that we should see our trials and our temptations as opportunities to be uh, perfected in Christ. That we should look at these trials and obstacles as joyous occasions for spiritual growth. He encourages us to actually live out the words that his big brother, Jesus, has taught us. 
He pulls largely from his big brother's most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and it reads a lot like the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Some people have actually called James the Proverbs of the New Testament. And so he condemns favoritism, pride, hypocrisy, uh, and dead faith, which we are going to cover in this series. Lots of fun stuff, right? And he writes to implore us as believers to live with a different kind of wisdom, to live with godly wisdom and not worldly wisdom. So today, the James, the half-brother of Jesus, is going to echo the words of his big brother, and he's going to proceed the words of the notorious B.I.G., and he's going to talk to us about the dangers of riches. But before I get to the text, there's a disclaimer, okay? James is a very challenging book. James is very convicting, okay? I like to call it a beautifully crafted punch in the gut, okay? Or like a very loving kick in the shin. So perhaps you're going to feel some conviction, right? But Jesus, whenever Jesus taught, largely in the Sermon on the Mount, he reveals our sin not to condemn us, but to reveal our need for him, okay? And so James pulls largely from that. He's going to reveal some of the things that are lurking in the dark crevices of your heart, and he wants to bring those things to light, not to condemn you, but because he loves you, amen? So with that in mind, let's get punched in the gut. James chapter 1, we're going to read chapter 1 verses 9 through 11, where James kind of begins this conversation, and then we're actually going to skip to chapter 5 where he really gets into it, okay? James chapter 1 verses, verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Chapter 5, verse 1. Warning to the rich. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Jeez. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, They're crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Recently, my wife and I, we moved into a new house in South City, and we had some friends come and help us move in some furniture. And one of the people that came was Pastor Matt. And Pastor Matt brought us some pot. No, he brought us a pot full of flowers. I should word that different next service. He brought us a pot, not pot, brought us a pot of beautiful pink flowers. (laughs) Hope Matt's not watching this. He brought us a pot of beautiful pink flowers that were vibrant and colorful, and they were very eye-catching, right? And so anybody who walked up on our porch saw these beautiful pink flowers. But it's, keep in mind, this is peak summertime, right? So uh, it's July. The sun is scorching down. And so these flowers are left out in the sun with no water because my wife forgot to water them. 
just kidding, it was me. She's in service now, and I saw her jaw just drop. That's, that's what I've been waiting for this whole time. It was my fault. So I didn't water the flowers, and then they died, where they once were beautiful, and they were uh, pink and vibrant and colorful and alive. Without any water, they soon died because of the scorching heat, and they looked like this. And once they looked like this, then I took them out behind my house and threw them away in a dumpster with the rest of the household trash. Again, sorry, Matt, if you're watching, that's what happened to your, your gift to me. And so... James issues this same warning, and this is the kind of the imagery that he uses to describe those who pursue wealth, those who pursue money above everything else on earth, those who find their their value, their worth, their significance, and money in the pursuit of money. This is what he says you will end up looking like. And more specifically, James calls it the laborers who abuse their workers, who take advantage of the little guy, right? The business tycoon who gets rich off the back of the little guy, but not so fast. He also is calling out those who claim to be Christians, who come into the church, who worship Jesus, but actually have no love for their neighbor, who don't care about the poor. They don't care about the widow. They don't care about the orphan. They don't care about the vulnerable in society. He also comes after them as well. Those who are greedy, those who are selfish, those who are money-obsessed. He says, like beautiful pink flowers that don't get watered, that get scorched in the sun and then thrown in a dumpster in South City, he says, so also will the rich man be in the midst of his pursuits. He says to the rich man to boast in his humiliation because he will soon be like dead flowers. And then in chapter 5, he says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Does James have a bone to pick with rich people? Does James just hate rich people? Is he just jealous? I would say no, because James actually isn't being unique here at all. He is actually echoing a theme that runs all throughout Scripture. A lot of what he talks about is actually echoing the prophets, Proverbs, and Jesus. These concepts that he's unpacking are not unique to him. Again, he just does it in a very James way. Very convicting and very challenging. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he'll hate the one and he will love the other or he'll be devoted to one and he will despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Proverbs eleven twenty eight says this, he who trusts in riches will fall. So perhaps you're wondering, does God hate rich people? Does God just not want us to be rich, right? Does God want us to give all of our things away, all of our possessions away, all of our money away, and also be poor? Is that what James is telling us? No. God is not anti-money. God is pro-people, all right? God is not anti-money. God is pro-people. And the danger that the biblical authors point to is that typically the more you love and value money, the less you love and value the people that God loves and the people that God values. And this puts you at odds with God. This is the theme that's woven all throughout Scripture. So I want to trace that together this morning. We're going to start in my favorite book, Leviticus. Leviticus 19.10 says this, do not go over your vineyard a second time 
or pick up the grapes that have fallen, leave them for the poor, the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. What is he saying here? He's saying, I don't want you to be greedy. I want you to have a harvest. I want your needs met. So I want you to go over the field and I want you to take what it is that you need. But I don't want you to keep going over your field and getting every last scrap so you can sell everything and make more money for yourself. What I would rather you do is take what it is that you need, not go over your field a second or third time. So if perhaps some grapes have fallen... Leave those for the poor. Leave those for the traveler. Why? Not because God is anti-money. It's not that God doesn't want you to make money. God wants your needs met. But God is pro-people. Moses tells uh, us in Deuteronomy, I'm not going to put it up on here because it's a very lengthy passage. I'm going to condense it. But he says to the people, part of your worship of God is giving 10% of your yearly harvest. Give 10% of your yearly harvest, and then God actually tells his people, what I want you to do is have a celebration. Whenever you take your 10%, you take your harvest. I want it to be a big celebration where you throw a big party and even tells them, actually, part of the 10%, you can sell and get some party favors, and then you can buy food and buy drink because it's a celebration of the blessings that I have given you. So enjoy that. But also, he says, don't neglect the Levites. Why does he say that? Because the Levites were the priests. They had no land. They had no harvest. So they had no money. And so he's saying, I want you to celebrate. I want you to have a good time. I want you to be blessed, but I have blessed you to be a blessing to others. I have taken care of you, so I want you now to take care of others. That is what James is telling us later on. But before we get to that, eventually God's people don't do this, right? Naturally, we get very greedy. What do we want to do? Well, that's my money, right? I worked for it. I worked hard for it. I don't want to give 10%. I did it. I made it. This is for me. How am I going to go and and go to vacation in Florida if I give 10%? How am I going to get to go and buy the new expensive toys? How am I going to get to go and buy? I'm not going to be able to get the new iPhone. I can't give 10%. It's a lot. It's not just us. The people of the Bible did the exact same thing. We talked about this in length in Isaiah. God says, I have blessed you. I've called you to be my nation, to be a blessing, to be a blessing to others. So I have blessed you to be a blessing to others. You are blessed so you can be a conduit by which the blessings of God now flow out to the rest of the world. Amen? That's what he's called us to be. And guess what? That doesn't go over so well. The people of Judah hoard their wealth and they're selfish and they're greedy and they practice idolatry and not worshiping God and God gets very angry. Why? Because they've neglected the widows and the orphans. They've neglected the poor so that they can live in luxury and in self-indulgence. We discussed this in length that the people of Judah failed and what happened? God gets angry. Not because God is anti-money, but because God is pro-people. So again, continuing to trace this thread, look at Zechariah, Zechariah 7, 8 through 12. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, okay? This is what God said. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice, saying, this is what I want from you. True justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the poor, the widow, the fatherless, the foreigner, the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention. The people refused to listen to God. 
And stubbornly, they turned their backs and they covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit earlier through the prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. God gets angry when people abuse their wealth and hoard their wealth at the expense of other people. He gets mad. Not because he's anti-money, he's pro-people. He wants his people to reflect him. He wants his people to reflect his generous heart and his love for them and care for them. And when people fail to do this, God gets angry. Fast forward about 500 years from the time of Zechariah and now James chastises the rich for doing exactly the same thing. Claiming to be the people of God. Claiming to love God but not love people. Claiming to be followers of Christ, yet neglecting the poor. They've put their value and their significance and their identity in something that he says is destined to wither and fade away. Like their clothes, their money, their cars, and their big houses and their corner offices and their college degrees will all soon fade away. And listen to this. And when they stand before God... It says your gold and silver will be evidenced against you. All of the stuff that you have found worth in and value in, all the money that you've hoarded for for your security and your salvation, it says will be evidenced against you. All of these things that you find your identity in, your salvation in, your fulfillment in, your joy in, all of these things at the expense of helping other people will be evidenced against you, will be exhibit A when you stand before God and are judged. Why? God is not anti-money. God is pro-people. Look at what he says. Chapter 5, verse 4. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. They are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. In essence, James is telling the rich You loved money more than you loved people. You valued money more than you valued people. And you will have to answer to God for that. You valued a dollar more than you valued someone who's made in the image of God. And you will have to answer to God for that. He says you've been selfish. You've been greedy. Self-indulgent. Only looking out for yourself. And that's why he tells the rich that they will be humiliated. And why they will weep, because judgment is coming. And so a question we like to ask here at Rooftop is, so what, right? What does this mean for us? I could stop the message right now, now that we all feel like crap, you know, and say, all right, let's sing one more song, let's pass the offering box. And you're like, hey, honey, you got an extra $5? We could drop in this morning. Let me put my watch in there. She feels so bad, right? It's my, my wedding ring. Let me put that in there, right? We think that's what God's after. Listen. God does not want you to drop in an extra $5 in the offering box today and then not ever think about this again, okay? So don't do that. That's why we're not ending the sermon there because I don't want you to think, all right, I'm going to give an extra couple dollars today and then that'll appease God later. That's not what I'm saying. God wants your heart, okay? God wants to reveal what's actually going on in your heart right now. And so to the poor... James encourages you, you will be exalted, you will be lifted high, you will be exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father. Come on, somebody, that's exciting. And to the rich, James issues a a very pointed warning. And for most of us in here, we actually fall into the category of people that James is warning, right? Most of us in here have been like, do I fall in this category? Am I part of the rich? Well, 
if you make $25,000 or more in a year, you are in the top 10% of the world's wealth. Did you know that? Because again, I was reading this this past week and I'm like calling my mom like, mom, I don't think I'm a Christian. Like, I'm just so bad at this. So convicted and challenged. If you make $34,000 or more a year, you are in the top 1% of the world's wealth. Think about that. So the question this morning is not, am I part of the rich? Am I the people that James is talking to here? Well, I mean, if you subtract that and do that, well, taxes, you know? No. The question is, how do we use our wealth wisely? How do we honor God with our money? How do we value people with our money and not end up weeping and howling and having our flesh eaten? Personally, I don't want that for me. Um, Love you guys. I don't want that for you either. All right? So how do we use our wealth wisely? That is the question that we're going to be talking about in the remaining time that we have together. Are you guys still with me? Told you. This is brutal stuff. This is brutal. Number one, we must be prepared. We must be prepared. As James illustrates, since we know that Jesus is going to return, this should impact and influence the way that we live our lives, right? I used to work at restaurants, and when we knew the boss was coming in that day, when we knew the owner was coming in that day, guess what? The restaurant never looked cleaner than when we knew the boss was coming in, right? Some of y'all nodding your heads, you know what I'm talking about, right? And we made sure we were checking stuff off the to-do list. We had no cell phones out. They were all in a lockbox somewhere where they were supposed to be. And like, we'd walk around with like brooms just in case he came in and then we'd immediately just be ready to go, right? We would be prepared because we knew that the boss was coming, that the boss was going to arrive at any minute and we wanted to be above reproach whenever he showed up. And so since we know that Jesus is going to return, this should impact and influence the way that we live our lives. We should be prepared. So what should we do first? Well, number one, repent. Repent of the greed that's in your heart. Repent of the greed that's in your life. Repent of the times that you have valued money over valuing people. Repent and believe that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Son of God. Confess your sins and believe in Jesus, that his death on the cross atones for your sins and that you are saved, that you are made new, you are a new creation and now allow the Holy Spirit to enter into your heart and to change you and to challenge you and to convict you and to help conform you into the image of Christ, right? That's number one. So if you've done step one, great, let's move on to step two. If you haven't done step one, I pray that changes in the next 22 minutes and four seconds, all right? So step two, what do we do with our money? What's on the to-do list? Well, I could tell you. Hey, t- hey Heather, tithe 10%. You know that already, right? You said, yes, got it, I already do that. Hey, Marcos, give to the poor. Yeah, you know that, right? Hey, Ben, give to charity. Come on, you know that, right? You guys know that. You guys would know what we're supposed to be doing. So I wanted to go a little bit deeper because I feel like James goes a little bit deeper here. So what's on the to-do list to do with our money in preparation for the arrival of the boss. Serve one master. Well, you may wonder, what does that have to do with money? As Jesus told us in Matthew 6, you can't serve God and money. You'll pick one. Jesus tells us wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will also be also. Is wealth your treasure? Is money your treasure? Because that is what you are going to be devoted to. James starts off his letter by saying, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word he uses is, is doulos which actually can be translated as bondservant or slave. When we hear that word, it brings up a lot of negative, uh, negative words, negative feelings, negative connotations. He's not talking about slavery like we saw here in the American colonies, right? He's talking about something different. So for context, 
Back in James' day, if you had a debt that you wanted to pay off, or perhaps you wanted to elevate yourself in a society, you could enter into a voluntary servanthood and serve one master or one family. And you would typically do that until your debt was paid off or after seven years. And after that time was done, you would be gifted profits for your labor and also be given a gift to start your new life with. But if a servant had developed a love for a master, what he could do is he could actually ask to perpetually serve him for the rest of his life. This showed his desire to commit his life to him, to devote his life to him, and his love for him. And so if this was accepted, there was no termination date short of death. Think of like Bruce Wayne and Alfred, right? Okay? And so this person would voluntarily give up their rights and their privileges to serve one master, to become a voluntary servant. And you may think, how primitive, right? Who would do that? You would. You do it every day, either to Jesus or to money. You have already given up your rights, your privileges, your time, and your devotion and service to one master. It's either one or the other. As Jesus says, you will either be devoted to one and you're going to despise the other. You don't get to serve both. You may say, well, I love money, but I don't despise Jesus. Well, I would ask you, do you love him? And Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. What are his commands? Are you tithing? Are you giving to the poor? Are you helping people? Are you loving people? Do you love people? If you don't love God, and that love for God doesn't manifest itself in a love for others, don't call yourself a Christian because you're not one. Are you the harvester who goes and picks over his field three, four, five, six, seven times to fatten your stomach at the expense of the poor and the needy and the less fortunate? You either serve God or you serve money. You cannot serve both. And since we know that judgment is coming... It should impact and influence the way that we live our lives. We must be prepared. Number two, we must adopt godly priorities. We must adopt godly priorities, which are building God's kingdom, not our own, and not just caring about yourself, not caring about ourselves, but caring about the people that God cares about and the people that God loves. This is one of the most dangerous things about wealth, is when getting wealth and attaining wealth and money and status becomes your main priority, It's a disease. It will take over your whole life and your whole life will be about accumulating more and more and more and more and more. As the oil tycoon John Rockefeller said in an interview, he was asked, how much money is enough? You know what he said? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. If money is your top priority, you're always going to need just a little bit more. You're never going to have enough. And you're no longer, if that's your main priority, you're no longer worried about building God's kingdom. You're worried about building your earthly kingdom. And again, that puts you at odds with God. You're no longer worried about caring for people because you're just worried about yourself. That's selfish. And guess what? That puts you at odds with God. I talked to Blake Aarons this week. And he gave me some great advice. If you don't know who Blake is, Blake's one of our elders here at Rooftop, man of integrity. Um, And he's very smart. He's very humble. He's very wise. And so in preparation for the sermon, I like to to talk to people who are much smarter than me. And, And I hope he doesn't mind me saying this. He makes significantly more money than I do. He's very wealthy. He's very well off. And so I asked him, you do this so well. How do, you, how, how, how do you manage your wealth so wisely? How do you use your wealth so wisely? And he told me this, and I wrote it down, and I'm like, man, this is, this is amazing. 
Having a generous heart comes from seeing people as image bearers of God. That's what he said. Having a generous heart, being generous, comes from seeing people as God sees people. Having godly priorities. And when I think of a generous heart, I think of my mama. And so growing up, uh, my mama was a, I, I, she would help with the children's church at my church when I was really little. And they would do a Wednesday night program for, for kids. And one night, my mom brought cookies in for all of her students. And these girls just devoured this box of cookies like really quick. And my mom asked, uh, uh, did you guys not eat dinner? Just teasing them. And they looked at her like she was crazy. Like, no, of course we didn't eat dinner. She's like, well, why not? And they said, well, we only get two meals a day at school. You know, we get breakfast and then we get lunch. You know, we don't, we don't get to eat dinner and we don't get to eat on the weekends. And my mom just felt so like, oh my gosh, so devastated, so burdened for these people. And she has godly priorities. And so again, we didn't make a lot of money. I was on the free lunch plan at school, all right? And so we didn't make a lot of money, but my mom, she had godly priorities, was looking and she saw a need. She saw hungry kids. She saw poor kids who needed to eat. And my mom felt burdened, again, because she has godly priorities and a generous heart. And so my mom started a feeding ministry at that church. And eventually she got it started with her own money and then eventually other people were able to help and contribute. But she saw a need and she was willing to fill that need because again, she had godly priorities and a generous heart. And that ministry grew. And so eventually she was feeding hundreds of kids every Wednesday night and hundreds of kids came to know Jesus because of that ministry. That's godly priorities. Another thing Blake told me was, uh, hold your wealth loosely. And he shared this story of whenever he first got married, he and Gerilyn, Gerilyn's his wife, and and they were talking about how much they were going to tithe. And she reminded him, right? She reminded him that this money that they had was not theirs at all. All the stuff they had, all the blessings they had didn't really belong to them. They were just stewards of it. And it was actually all God's. And so he said once he realized that all of the stuff that he had, all the money he had was actually God's, he began to hold it a lot more loosely, And instead of holding things like this, if we have a generous heart, we will hold things like this. Lastly, we must see with a godly perspective. See with a godly perspective. Be prepared, have godly priorities, and see with a godly perspective. From our vantage point, all we can see is right now, right? And that's all we care about. And if you focus on wealth in this life, you are not focused on God and you are not focused on the next. And so James asks a question, or he tells us, you have lived a life On the earth in luxury and self-indulgence, you have fattened your hearts. I want you to think, is that you this morning? Because if we focus on accumulating material wealth, living in luxury now, we're not focused on what God wants us to be focused on. So as we continue, as we move on, lastly, I want us to focus on the permanent, not the perishable. As we go through life, the money, wealth, status, the things that we have acquired, they are all perishable. They are all going to be moth-eaten and they are going to be burned up. In case you didn't know that. Paul tells Timothy, instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all the things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, store up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of which is life indeed. Look at this warning of Paul to a young Timothy. Tell the rich people in your congregation not to put their hope, not to put their trust in things that are going to perish, in the 
uncertainty of money, but instruct them to be rich in good works, to be generous, have generous hearts, ready to share and store up treasure of a good foundation for the future. This is what it looks like to adopt a godly perspective on wealth. Not hoarding and getting more and more and more and abusing and neglecting the poor. It's not being rich in money, it's being rich in good works. Someone in my young adults group said a few weeks ago, some people are so poor, all they have is lots of money. Because being rich is being rich in Christ. It's being rich in good works. It's being ready to share and it's being generous. So let's go back to James chapter one. How is it that the lowly can boast? How is it that the lowly person can boast? Because remember, this is about preserving, persevering, excuse me, in trials. The rich are tested in their riches and the poor are tested in their poverty. And look at what James says in verse 12. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive what? The crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The poor can rejoice because in their end, their salvation is secured in heaven because of Jesus. That is worth celebrating. They will be exalted. They will be seated at the right hand of the Father. So I want to tell you this morning that Jesus is much more valuable than any money. He's much more precious than any diamond or jewels. He's much more valuable and, and fulfilling and satisfying than any job. He's much more fulfilling than pursuing wealth that is just going to perish and rot. The poor in Christ are rich. And the rich outside of Christ are poor. That is the message that James is telling us. And the lowly can boast because he says, if you have Jesus, you've got everything you need. As David writes in the Psalms, the Lord is my shepherd. What? I lack nothing. I shall not want. I have absolutely everything I need found in my relationship with God. It's not about how much money you do or don't make. We can have an eternity that's secured with him. We can know true love, true joy, true peace, true fulfillment, true grace and true mercy, true peace. All of the things that money cannot buy that you so desperately desire. And as we wrap up, the more that we value money, the more that we find validation in money and value money, the less that we are going to find that validation in Christ and the, more, and the less likely we are going to love people. We've got to learn how to use our wealth wisely and avoid the dangers of wealth. Perhaps many of you are finding your validation and your security in money. You think money's going to fix your problems, that you need just a little bit more. But that true fulfillment can be attained. But it comes from a relationship with Jesus. It comes from something that is permanent, not perishable. And the things of this world are going to wither and they're going to be scorched and they're going to be dried up. But look at what our old friend Isaiah says. And the Lord will guide you continually. He will satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fall. If you place your hope and your trust in Jesus, you will not be scorched, but you will be watered by living water. As followers of Jesus, our wealth is the cross. There is nothing more valuable in our lives than what Jesus has done for you. There's nothing more valuable. There's nothing more precious. There's nothing more, 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 more revealing of his love than what he's done for us on the cross. And no matter what you have accomplished, no matter how much money you do or don't have, Jesus is more precious than all of that. Nothing compares to the beauty of Jesus. And all of it means nothing in comparison to the wealth that you have in Jesus. It's something that is permanent, not it's something that is perishable. So we're gonna sing.
Another song called Crowns This Morning, and it echoes the themes here of James. And so perhaps uh, this is something that's been convicting this morning. Maybe this has been something that's encouraging this morning. So as we sing this last song, I want you guys to go ahead and stand up. Maybe this is your, your cry of joy. Or maybe this is your prayer of repentance. So let's go ahead and stand up and let's sing the song together.